0: Hello and welcome to Upfront on the Voice of America. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Jackson Vonganyi. Today on Upfront...
1: They basically stigmatized farming and, and made people feel like if you were farming, it was about poverty. Like you were back, you know, you were, you were destitute. A young Kenyan
0: farmer is trying to get more African youth to be interested in agriculture. The
2: teachers are not going back to work. Not that they do not be in the classroom, but it was uh, the socio economic realities won't allow them.
0: Zimbabwean teachers say they deserve to be paid a living wage.
3: And over time, you tend to lose either the interest in your own language or even your competence.
0: African researchers are creating translation tools to recognise and promote indigenous languages such as Yoruba. But as always, let's start off by listening to some of your opinions. Many of you are going back to school after the lockdowns. Uh, schools are reopening again. How are things so far?
4: I'm 16. 16. I will be 16 in August. My God, you have so... I will be happy because I missed the school when I was in Okay, I, I, will, I will be happy if I go back to school. Uh, this pandemic I was selling I've been selling masks and shoes on the road, on the in fact on the street.
2: I'm called Nyonga Cedric
1: and well we've been locked for some time. So it, it will be a bit new to us. It will be like going back to school in a fresh way. It will be a bit hard to cope up with the situation, but I guess with time we shall get used again and been playing football mostly, but then I've been helping my parents out with some stuff. I've also been learning some, I've been having some music lessons.
4: Uh, my name is Ladona Karen. Um, I'm in year 10. I'm so glad that we are reporting back to school and we thank the president for that. Um, I think this has been two years now since we have not been going to school and it has really affected me in the learning and not only is the learning but also the fun we have at school and yeah, I'm very excited.
0: This is Upfront on the Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vonganyi. Thank you so much for joining us today. The United Nations estimates that by 2050, the world's population will grow to around 2.2 billion people, more than half of which will come from Africa. However, the continent continues to struggle to feed its people, even as it sits on over 200 million hectares of unused fertile land. Researchers say that Africa needs to increase its food production by 60% over the next 15 years for it to be able to feed its growing population. But for this to happen, the continent, of which the majority is under 25 years of age, must find innovative ways to make agriculture attractive to young people. Studies show that many youth in developing countries have negative perceptions of farming, which is one of the reasons Africa has become a net importer of food and the largest recipient of food aid in the world. Kevin Kamau is a young Kenyan entrepreneur and farmer. Through his organization Kalime Swahili for Let Us Go Farm, an agribusiness company that offers farm management, hopes to change that negative perception by encouraging more young people to become farmers. He joins me from Nairobi. I started off by asking him what inspired him to become a farmer.
1: To be honest, it it wasn't my design to to start farming. I I was living in the U.S. for about 10 years, then I moved back here. And the first thing was um, trying to get a job. And the funny thing is, you know, you always have those uncles and aunties telling you, could you please give me your, um, your resume, your CV, let me shop it around, move back and stuff. And then when you move back, these guys cannot be found. So... What what happened was uh, I met a gentleman that was farming and I just started um, just riding with him in this car and going to the farms and stuff. And we started our own farms. So he he had been laid off. Uh, So when he got a job, because he was job hunting, I was left by myself. However, my friends in the diaspora, mostly in the US, were like, hey, you've been farming. And we have a problem because we keep sending money back home. But mom and dad... Um, do not have the strength to keep on traveling and supervising the works at the the farm. Do you mind um, extending your services to cover our farms? That's how we started.
0: Now, Kevin, the narrative on the continent is that a farmer is someone in the rural areas who can barely make ends meet, and that students should never aspire to that kind of lifestyle. What, What attracted you to farming, and how do you change that narrative
1: for other young people on the continent? when we were growing up, we were told, if you don't go to school, you become a farmer. And the teachers, I don't know if it's through a fault of their own or just the way society was set up, they basically stigmatized farming and, and made people feel like if you were farming, it was about poverty, like you were back, you know, you were you were destitute. And so there's a rebellious thing in me that was like, no, we can do this because in Africa, for those who live in Africa in Kenya and everywhere else, um, you get to see most of our leadership, or most of the most wealthiest people in this continent primarily are farmers. Most of them lead industry in terms of farming, in terms of manufacturing, where they've invested in the agricultural sector. So for me, it was a thing to change that narrative and to show people that actually you can make a living and still be go on vacation and still live a very nice urban life. But farming is a, is a, is a humble uh, and rewarding um, occupation that you can take on.
0: And how do you become a farmer? What is the entry point? What are some of the basic things that you need to become a farmer? Is it simply a piece of land and some seeds?
1: Well, um, not, not necessarily. I mean, that's the beginning. The first thing you have to do is, I keep telling people there are two types of farming, You know, the romantic side of farming and the commercial side of farming. The romantic side of farming is when you go out there to the farm and take pictures and post them on, on an Instagram and say, hey, look at me, I'm I'm in the countryside and life is good. Then there's a commercial side of farming where you have to make sure that the inputs in terms of land, labor, and capital, so basically the factors of production are working in your favor to make a profit. So it's not only land and and seeds, you know, you need to look at is 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 you know, the first thing we usually start with is when you do your soil analysis, what does my soil have? Is, has it been over overused? Do I need to add fertilizer into the soil to make sure it's productive? Is there enough water to make sure that that my crops uh, are going to survive? And most importantly, um, what's, what's my route to market? Where am I going to sell this where? if Especially if you don't have that route to market, then you're kind of in, 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 in a losing game. You know, so there are very many parts to it, so there, but you have in anything that you do, you have to draw it out. huh. OK, so you have to carefully plan
0: it out and make sure that all these conditions are met. Now, that seems a little complicated and expensive, especially that part that has to do with the soil analysis. How does
1: one even know where to start? You see, okay, like for us guys, what we do, let me, let me explain our process. The first thing we do when we come out to uh, a farm that somebody's trying to contract us to to manage it, the first thing we do is do a feasibility study. And in this feasibility study, we take your soil analysis. We look at the risk factors. Is it a flood zone area? Um, are there animals, especially here in Africa, one of the biggest things is um, and, uh, wild animal incursions. Elephants, they are beautiful, but they cause a mess once they come to your farm. So such such things. And then we do a business case and say, all right, so Jackson, in order for you to farm on this land of yours, you know, um, based on the soil, the weather, rainfall, or irrigation, let's say, for example, potatoes will do well here. And then we go line by line and look at, if you have, let's say, an acre f- for argument's sake, <clears throat> what will it cost to de-risk this piece of land? And what inputs do we need? How many bags of fertilizer? How many, what's the seed rate in terms of how many seeds per, you know, per, per area will, will, will fit in this? Mm. And then from there, we'll know what your plant population is. And we'll know what the cost is to, to, for, these, for these crops to grow until maturity. Now,
0: given all these variables,
1: can, can you definitively tell how much your yield will be based on the seeds that you planted? Yes, yes, you can, because, I mean, <clears throat> the, the numbers are there in terms of data, in terms of tubers for banana, uh, sorry, bananas, sorry, for potatoes and stuff. So you know what you're looking at. The reason, so you're talking about percentiles, just like the way a newborn would be, right? So you know, at two months or three months, it's supposed to be at this this level, you know, in terms of weight, in terms of height. It's the same thing we do. So you look at every Protocol, when you follow the protocols of production at each level, let's say week four, week eight, you know where you're supposed to be, right? So by the time you're getting to week 20 or week 16, you already have an, a, a, um, an example or an idea what you're gonna get, you know? But then it all starts from the beginning. What was the seed rate? How many seeds did you put that was supposed to be put? Mm-hmm. And then when it germinates, you have to go and count on what we call a plant population. So, for example, do you have ten thousand plants? So, if you have ten thousand plants, you go back and say, "What does the protocol say?" Yes, you're supposed to get ten thousand to ten thousand five hundred plants. That means you're in a, you're on a winning trajectory. So, in your farm management duties, you are able to share that information
0: to the uh, with the
1: owner of the farm. Yes, it's it's not we don't ha- it's not proprietary. It it is basically it's out there. We share it. If you call me today and told me. Uh, you can you help <clears throat> my folks who want to plan? I'll give you this information. It's all proprietary. What Tukalima does is making sure that we follow the protocols, kind of like a gym instructor, like you gotta drink your water, you gotta you mm. gotta eat well, stuff like that, just to make sure you meet it. Anybody can do it, to be honest. We have the knowledge. It is just trying to make sure that it is followed to the T. <laughs>
0: you're just joining us, this is Upfront on the Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vungani. On the line with me is Kevin Kamau. He's the founder of Tukalime, a farm management company working in Kenya. Um, Now, Kevin, what what would you say have been some of your major challenges over the years as you started this business? I, I guess the kind of which a new entrant should anticipate.
1: You know, I mean, the biggest issue, of course, is always access to capital. Yeah, um, whenever we we do feasibility studies for clients, and and we show them what what it takes, because we are doing it the right way, a lot of people, I mean, it's not to a fault of their own. I mean, it's 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 expensive. You know, you mentioned one thing earlier on about the soil analysis. Um, you know, we're talking about it costs. It costs about 2,500 Kenya shillings, so about $25 on average, to do a soil analysis. What may seem to be not that much to you and I, but to a lot of people who are living in the villages, it's a lot of money, you know. So by the time you tell them to buy certified seeds, to buy fertilizer, to buy all those things, it becomes quite expensive. And that's one of the things as to Kalima we've been trying to champion. Um, in terms of access to finance. So that's one of the biggest, biggest issues that we encounter.
0: Why is uh, finance something that you worry yourself about, especially if you are farming on behalf of someone else?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've started to do it because we realized, you know, with some of the projects that we've done, you know, we start off well, and then you have a gentleman or a lady get stuck in the middle, you know. Unlike construction, where you can stop in the middle and say, let me, let me just go hustle a little bit and come back and continue. Mm-hmm. With Agri, don't have the full finance laid out, you're going to lose everything you put in. So we have... So you basically have to have your finances line up. Yeah, because I think once you have finance, then you'll be able to buy your fertilizer. You'll be able to take care of pests and diseases. Mm. You'll be able to do all these things. But apart from finance, the other thing is markets. Our markets are very fragmented, although um, they've been better. I mean, there are a lot of guys who are coming in who are uh, kind of consolidating the market. So... To be honest, on my part, and I know it's going to be a a, a question mark to a lot of people, I don't think market is the biggest thing. Finance is the biggest thing. Market is there. And
0: what would you say are some of the unique opportunities that Kenya presents to uh, an aspiring farmer, a young farmer, somebody who's kind of borderline um, and thinking about this um, uh, as a possibility, um, aside from, say, I guess, the great climate and, and fertile
1: soil, how would you sell uh, this person to farming? First of all, the one thing that's very unique with Kenya and uh, my fellow Kenyans uh, and I, a couple of years ago, we took it for granted is we have the skill set, man. We, in East and Central Africa, uh, we are pretty awesome in our agri uh, uh, talent. I mean... We, we, we also, most, most of the things that ail Kenyan agri is cost of production, but in terms of skill set, I'm telling you, I think I was reading somewhere, um, I think we've overtaken South Africa in avocado production now. I think we're number one in Africa, mm. you know, that's not a, that's not a small feat, wow. you know, um, that, that's big. The other thing is we have, um. I know this might sound ironical, but we have financial inclusion. When when you have things like M-Pesa and stuff, it makes trade be faster. That means you go to the market, you get paid, you're done, go back home, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, farmers also need to get paid so they can pay their bills. I mean, there are still some people, some organizations here, supermarkets and big chains that try to play. Silly games with people's money in terms of I'll pay you for 60, <laughs> yeah. 60 or 90 days. I'm like, what am I supposed to do in 60, 90 days? I need to eat. <laughs> and that, that is, is wrong. Little... Okay.
0: Um so Kevin, as we end our conversation, I wanted to talk a little bit about the issue of narrative and how it continues to limit the number of young people
1: joining the agricultural industry. Um, how do you change this narrative? I... It's, it's, it's detrimental, I mean, for, for real. You know, I, I, I think um, it's such a, it's so hard to try and change what's been drilled on generations to generations, especially when it comes to farming and, and, and the youth. I honestly think it's a systemic um, change. I, I believe government needs to really, really put in resources to try and um, change the tide. Because any any, I don't think I think any government or any country that doesn't itself is you can't claim successes if 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 you can't feed your population. It's you know you yourself at home, you know if if you you, you know you want to buy all the best sneakers and all these things, but if you can't put food on the table for your family, it's mm-hmm. it's not success. Yeah. That
0: was Kevin Kamau speaking to me from Nairobi, Kenya. Kevin is the founder of Tukalime, a farm management company based in Kenya. The right to education in Zimbabwe is under threat as public school teachers threaten to stay away until the government raises their salaries. They say that inflation and the payment of their salaries in lower-value Zimbabwean dollars makes it nearly impossible to survive. From Harare, Rutendo Muere has this report.
4: Negotiations with the government are done on an ad hoc basis and they received a small raise in October last year. But with conditions deteriorating, teachers say they are forced to negotiate monthly. Fight the stalemate over salaries between Zimbabwe public school teachers, government has announced that schools open this week. Teachers' unions have written to authorities saying that they will not report for duty unless there's an improvement in their working and living conditions. Amalgamated Rural Teachers Union of Zimbabwe President Opet Masaraure says the right to education for the poor is under threat. He blames this on the failure by government to provide adequate salaries for its employees.
2: The Teachers are not going back to work, not that they do not want to be in the classroom, but it was uh, the socio-economic realities won't allow them just because these uh, teachers are earning less than US $100 uh, at a time where rentals for just three rooms are up to is $150, so teachers can't afford even basic accommodation, food, transport, or even drinking water. Uh, it would be a, the greatest betrayal to see a teacher leaving their own children at home and walking in the classroom to teach other people's children. It's very unfortunate that the government of the day has failed to assume its constitutional mandate. They failed to fund education. They failed to pay teachers. Uh, even if the teachers were going to make it to the classroom, even then as we also are failing to make it because of
4: poverty. Uh, and So government should be available funds uh, to provide state-funded funding education. Masaraure says students are already behind because of the COVID-19-induced school closures and that the absence of teachers in the classroom will worsen an, an already bad situation. So
2: it's very unfortunate that the generation is lost. Some are going to be engaging in child marriage, drugs, among other ills if the government chooses not to step up and provide education.
4: Munyara Zimajonis, the Secretary General for the Zimbabwe National Union of School Heads. Heads and deputies love their country. We love our work.
2: It's the only job we have. Unfortunately, we no longer have the capacity to be at work. Heads and deputy heads from across the ten provinces are telling us that they can no longer afford to be at work as well as to carry out the duties expected of them until and unless their employer empowers them to do so by restoring their remuneration to pre-October 2018 levels and in real U.S. dollar terms. We can
4: no longer afford the services that we offer, even for our own children. Rikichi Nodawafa is a parent of three children in public schools. He says the poor are bearing the brand of the failure by government to put its house in order.
2: It is us with children in public schools who suffer from the stalemate between government and teachers. While children in private school have been doing online lessons our children have not been doing anything now that COVID has gone down and schools are opening the children will not be learning teachers will not be there and they have genuine reasons even if they come to to class they are disgruntled to fully deliver on their mandate
4: child rights advocate Anna jo shares a view. As it is, the school calendar is already behind, and I feel if any action should be taken, it should be that of ensuring that the right to education of pupils is met. The government has not commented on the threats by the teachers' unions. VOA was also not able to reach the Director of Communications and Advocacy in the Ministry of Primary and Secondary Education of Zimbabwe, Taunga Nandoro. For VOA, this is Rutendo Mawere Narare.
0: You're listening to Upfront on the Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vunganyi. Let's go to Nigeria, where voice-activated virtual assistant technologies, such as Siri and Alexa, are becoming increasingly common around the world. But in Africa, with many languages, with its many languages, most people are at a digital disadvantage. To address the problem, some African researchers are creating translation tools to recognize and promote indigenous languages, such as Yoruba.
5: Timothy Obiezo, in Abuja has more. Yoruba language teacher Oluwafemi Awosonya resumes a day's classes with his students. He has been teaching the language for 10 years but says he often struggles to migrate his class modules to an online student's blog site he created because there is no speech recognition technology for Yoruba.
0: Yoruba language is a language that has to do with science There comes with a lot of signs at the, uh, the top um below you know i need to go extra mile when I'm typing when I'm typing my notes i have to first type on microsoft word and even when i type on microsoft word it gives me this highlighting like the words are not correct
5: awosania spends several hours manually editing and correcting his notes before uploading them to his blog he says despite technological advances in africa languages like Yoruba, one of the most commonly spoken in Nigeria, remain neglected, affecting his students.
0: Limit knowledge, limit the exhibition of knowledge. There are things you might wish you want to educate the student on. There are things you want to exhibit in the classes.
5: More than 2,000 distinct languages are spoken in Africa. Researchers say two-thirds of the native speakers miss out on emerging technologies due to language limitations in the tech world. Nigerian writer and language advocate Kola Tubosun says the issue threatens Africa's technological future. He has since been trying to promote inclusivity for his native Yoruba tongue. He created an online Yoruba dictionary as well as a text-to-speech machine that translates English to Yoruba. He said the initiative was partly inspired by his grandfather, who could not read or write in English.
3: If a language doesn't exist in technology space, it is almost as if it doesn't exist at all. Um, That is the way the world is structured today, um, in that if you spend all your time online every day and the only language you encounter is English or Spanish or Mandarin or whatever else, it tends to define the way you interact with the world. And over time, you tend to lose either the interests in your own language or even your competence.
5: Tubosun, who advocates for including African languages in technology, says the tech giants are starting to pay attention, even though the gap remains very wide.
3: There are a lot of obstacles. Some languages are not written down at all. Some don't have scripts. Some have scripts, but don't have so many people using the languages or writing them in you know, in education or using them in daily conversations.
5: Language experts say it will take a long time before African languages are widely adopted in voice-driven technology. In the meantime, researchers like Tubosun and Awosanya will be working to adapt the Yoruba language for technology users. Timothy Obiezu for VOE News, Abuja, Nigeria.
6: Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Ah! Ah! Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC.
0: You're listening to Upfront on the Voice of America, my name is Jackson Vonganyi, and let's go to South Africa. The country has seen a jump in pet sales during the coronavirus pandemic. And it's not just for guard dogs, which are common because of a high crime rate. South Africa's pet shops say in a world of social distancing, people are finding companionship in a range of furry and even
6: slithering animals. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. For many, finding a snake in their garden would be a fright but for 15-year-old Jimmy Deeb, it's a comforting sight. He started adopting snakes during the first pandemic lockdown, in part being inspired by a friend who had a snake as a pet. I
0: just used to spend my
6: days playing
0: with my snakes and just holding them and cleaning the enclosures and looking at them. They really are just majestic animals. It's not a aggressive Evil killer, like people think, and I can tell you that they are really awesome pets. I have dogs, and I have some snakes that are like dogs, like they are really intelligent.
6: And he says he's not alone in his hobby, he's joined online groups with other snake parents to share tips and tricks about where to buy and how to take care of the creatures. They're certainly not for everyone, but pet ownership and spending on pet care, from health to treats, has climbed during the pandemic, according to market research firm Euromonitor International cat breeder Cheryl Moss says there was certainly a rise in sales for more traditional pets.
5: I think a lot of people now they've realized home is actually where your heart needs to be not work and and they need to now make their homes a home where they've got someone to come home to and share with them and um, I've certainly had a lot of a lot of queries a lot of interest People saying, you know what, I'm lonely, it's time for a companion. The pandemic was
6: particularly hard for Dr. Cherie Claire Sismak and her husband, who is also a physician. She says getting a ragdoll kitten helped relieve their stress. Sometimes the
0: unspoken love of a cat, um, especially after a rough shift where you don't even really want to talk, and you just have someone who, who just is there, loves you, cuddles you. When you get home and you hold that baby, you just feel... Okay, I can breathe.
6: Psychologists agree that pets have therapeutic benefits and that emotional support is increasingly recognized by the public. Lee Tucker is a clinical psychologist at the University of the Western Cape.
5: So we are seeing that there has been very positive shifts that have been made where there's a lot more narrative around the role of dogs and cats in the household and what they can offer. And our animal companions can be there to provide that comfort and that reassurance during difficult times.
6: While the pandemic has changed perceptions of the role of cats and dogs in the home, Terco warns economic pressures and job losses are forcing some families to give up their new pets. That's not a concern for Deeb, who anticipates his collection growing. And I would like to do that one day open like my own little reptile zoo and i also was looking into going into
0: nature conservation and that so i love nature and animals
6: snakes may not be conventional pets but they can certainly give you a hug and in the eyes of their owners they're great companions linda giftash for voa news johannesburg
0: And that's it for this edition of Upfront. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are at VOA Upfront on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani. wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.